Listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, the 29th of September, and in this episode, an unsolved outback disappearance. The landscape around Larimer is harsh and difficult. There are snakes, there are sinkholes. Initially, the search was to find Paddy or his remains, but quite quickly, it became clear that the circumstances were very odd. Yeah, it's the case of the colourful character called Paddy Moriarty, who hasn't been seen since 2017. Now, you'll find out what clues there are to his disappearance and why roadkill was one of them. First, Katrina Blowers joins us from Brisbane for today's headlines. Katrina, I imagine you Queenslanders are getting a bit nervous right now. Yeah, Tom, it couldn't have happened at a worse time. Not that there's ever a good time for a COVID cluster. Authorities are monitoring two new clusters that have popped up in Brisbane, but they aren't locking the city down yet or making any changes to Sunday's NRL Grand Final so far. I do have a reasonable level of concern. This stage, I do not think a lockdown is warranted. That could change. That's Queensland's Chief Health Officer, Dr Jeanette Young, speaking there. Queensland announced four new mystery local COVID cases yesterday. Uh, There's a husband and a wife uh, linked to Brisbane Airport and a truck driver. Epidemiologist Nancy Baxter says the outbreak is concerning because the two clusters are unrelated. They actually now have cases that seem to be in two completely separate outbreaks, so they're not related. So they have two independent chains of transmission, and both of them are a bit concerning. So, Katrina, you've been reporting on the NRL grand final. What's going to happen? All right, people are really sweating bullets on this Mm. because 52,000 tickets have been sold. Suncorp Stadium is completely sold out. And also, it has the potential, depending on what happens, to be a super spreader event. But I spoke to some NRL executives yesterday. They are telling everyone, just stay calm. Mm. The plan is at this stage to keep the game on at Suncorp, although they did admit that they have had contingency plans going on in the background for Townsville. Uh, We also spoke to some Townsville residents yesterday. They are beside themselves with oh. excitement at the prospect. They've had <laughs> the state of origin. They yeah. just had a bunch of international rugby games. That stadium they built there has been put to good use this year. It sure has. The only issue, Tom, is that it only holds half the capacity mm. of Suncorp. So the NRL stands to lose a huge amount of ticket revenue, in particular if, as our Cho in Queensland says, she may not make a decision on this until Sunday morning. Yeah, the so day of the game. Yeah. The mad scramble that's going to happen if she decides to pull the pin on Brisbane for the grand final first thing Sunday morning. Oh, can't yeah. even imagine. Well, we'll follow the news from Brisbane very closely over the next day or two because this could be a quickly changing situation. Federal COVID payments will be wound back as we hit the 70 and 80% vaccination targets. Yeah, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg is expected to reveal the details today. Um, Basically, this is designed to save the government money and also discourage states from using hard lockdown measures once we're vaccinated. It comes after the TGA confirmed Australians will be able to test themselves for COVID. These are rapid antigen tests. They're going to be made available for purchase from the start of November. From what I'm hearing so far, Tom, is that they're going to be a little bit like um, home pregnancy tests, Hmm. you know. So you can test yourself at home, but it's not completely accurate. You'll Hmm. still need to go to the doctor and get that official either all clear or otherwise. And there's also a bit of a cloud so far over how much they'll cost. 
cost because some places like Singapore, they're 10 bucks, but then um, the US and UK, they're about $50 each. Yeah, and apparently you get your result within like 15, 20 minutes. So it can be really handy for lots of things. Um, in some parts of the world, they're using them to uh, allow people into gigs or, or conversely not allow them into gigs. And it can be an important piece of the puzzle um, for people, especially who aren't vaccinated, to prove that they don't have COVID. It's another way of sort of getting around that. No police checks for vaccination status in New South Wales. So there's a bit of a cloud over what's going to happen here as New South Wales gets ready to partially reopen next Monday, with police saying they won't be proactively checking people's jab status. We will not be walking through restaurants and cafes and pubs checking if people are double vaccinated. That's the New South Wales Police Commissioner Mick Fuller. He said they'll police the vaccination policy when they're called by shop or restaurant owners who request help dealing with problematic unvaccinated customers. And the state government said businesses won't face fines if an unvaccinated person was allowed entry, but the action will be taken against the individual. So I think, you know, this is one of those situations where we've never been in a situation like this before. So I guess we're not going to know what it's like until we roll this out, until, you know, we start opening up restaurants and cafes again and, and seeing how compliant and honest people are. Yeah, well, we've got a pretty clear roadmap on this, which sets out, I guess, the time frame. So we're going to start reopening from next Monday and then unvaccinated people won't get the same freedoms as everyone else until early December. So this, there's this almost two-month period that's going to be very awkward if unvaccinated people are rocking up to shops or restaurants. And clearly the police and the state government don't want to put any extra pressure on these poor small business people who've done it so tough. So they're sort yeah. of trying to tread lightly. But if they tread too lightly, then they're going to be allowing unvaccinated people to come in and mix with everyone else, potentially exposing them to greater risk of transmission, which was the whole point of getting everyone vaccinated. That's right. And I think it also opens up the door for some potentially tricky friendship circle situations. Hmm. Imagine if you're getting a whole bunch of people together to go out to a restaurant and you know that some of your friends are not vaccinated. That's going to be a tough conversation to have with some people that you're really close to. And Gabby Petito's parents have called on Brian Laundrie to hand himself in to police. They've given a press conference along with their lawyer. For Brian, we're asking you to turn yourself in to the FBI or the nearest law enforcement agency. That's the Petito family lawyer Richard Stafford speaking there this morning. Gabby's body was found two weeks ago in a national park in Wyoming after she went missing in early September. Yeah, she and her fiancé, 23-year-old Brian Laundrie, had been on a van holiday travelling across the United States, posting their trip on social media. Then he arrived back in Florida without her and then disappeared. And at the press conference overnight, the family have revealed they've all got matching tattoos to remember her. These were tattoos that Gabby designed herself. She was an artist and... Um I wanted to have her with me all the time. Yeah, that's her parents and step-parents there. They've all got these tattoos. Um, Let it be in, in sort of running writing, which is apparently the same tattoo Gabby had on her right arm. They've, they've all got those. And also Believe and a couple of others that she designed herself, um, which is a very touching tribute, I think. Yeah, and this story is still playing out in real time. Brian Laundry's still missing somewhere, probably in Florida. And I guess we're just waiting to see if he's going to turn up dead or alive. Well, speaking of missing persons, we're going to turn to the story of another one uh, in the Northern Territory. (laughs) 
All right, now to today's briefing, the unsolved outback disappearance of Paddy Moriarty. This story centres on the tiny town of Larimer. It only has 12 residents and sits on the dusty Stewart Highway about six hours' drive from Darwin. Yeah, all that's there is a pub, a tea house, there's a handful of houses and that's about it. But it came to national attention uh, four years ago when 70-year-old Paddy Moriarty and his Kelpie Kelly left the Larimer pub never to be seen again. As an investigation made headlines, the rumour mill went into overdrive with tales of camel pies, wild donkeys, crocodiles, sinkholes and even drug deals. Soon after it all went down, investigative journalists Caroline Graham and Kylie Stevenson went to town to try and get to the bottom of the story and they surprisingly ended up falling in love with the town of Larimer and they've written a book about Paddy Moriarty's disappearance. It's called Larimer. Kylie, Caroline, thanks for joining us. Why have you delved so deep into this story? I actually went to Larimer about a year before Paddy Moriarty disappeared and I had met him, I had met a lot of people in the town and I'd already become pretty invested in the place. So I was really keen to just document this town that seemed to be slipping off the map and that felt really important and we had so much information after we made the podcast that we really wanted to put it all into a book. Your story centres around Paddy Moriarty. Can you tell us about the man, not what happened, we'll get to that, but about the man that you discovered through your research? We'd heard really similar things from most people who who knew Paddy well, that he was a a larrikin, that he was someone who would give you his last $5. He was, I think, a larger-than-life character. Almost anyone who'd ever passed through the pub remembered him. They remembered having, you know, a great night and a couple of drinks and hearing some wild stories. Um, But over the course of the research, I think we discovered that he was much more complex than that. He had been in a long-standing I guess you could say it's a feud with his his nearest neighbour, that that had been a little bit of a pattern that had existed in his relationships with other people. And the more we looked into it, the, the more complex he was. We, almost everyone, you know, we'd, we'd hear from 10 people who loved him and there would also be one person in that mix of 10 who, who said that he was a really difficult person in some ways. And that gets me to what did happen. So on December 16, 2017, Paddy left the Larimer Hotel. He'd been at the bar. He was never seen again. So I wanted to know how long it actually took for locals to raise an alarm about this. It did take a little while. Uh, So at the time, the pub was being run by a man named Barry Sharp and he and Paddy were really good mates. He'd seen Paddy on that last night. Paddy had been in and had a few drinks And he was expecting him to turn up again the next day and he didn't. And he just thought, oh, maybe he's having a day off, I'll I'll leave him be. But then the following day when he didn't turn up, Barry really started to think, hang on a minute, there's there's something odd going on here. So he went over and checked Paddy's house, had a look around, couldn't find him. And then it was sort of another 24 hours before Barry really started to become concerned and called police. So Paddy went missing on the Saturday and I think the police were down there by the Wednesday and there was a pretty extensive search underway pretty quickly after that. So where did the investigation go from there and who became the prime suspects? Police haven't officially named people as suspects, but there are definitely persons of interest. 
I guess initially what they were really hoping to do was to recover Paddy, that they had thought initially that maybe it was an accident or a medical issue or some sort of misadventure. Um, the landscape around Larimer is, is harsh and difficult. There are snakes, there are sinkholes. Initially, the search was to find Paddy or his remains, but quite quickly it became clear that the circumstances were very odd so his wallet his keys his car everything was at the house there was no sign of a struggle he hadn't used any of his bank accounts or anything no one had heard from him and it became clear that however he had left that day it was probably not by his own volition so it quite quickly escalated into a murder investigation in a town the size of Larimer, at the time Paddy went missing, there were 12 people in town and there were a number of tensions in the town. So there was initially, and to an extent still is, quite a lot of finger pointing around the town. And so that was those initial lines of investigation. Okay, so you said there were fingers being pointed. Who were the fingers being pointed at mostly? Paddy, as Carrie mentioned, had been in a long-running fight with his neighbour across the road, a woman called Fran Hodgetts, who ran a tea house there in Larimer. And it was pretty unusual fighting that had been going on for years, very, very Larimer, you know, um, only a couple of weeks, or actually I think the week before he went missing, Paddy had found some roadkill on the highway and thrown it over Fran's fence. And um, that kind of thing happened a bit. So I guess a lot of people were kind of initially thinking that's the most prominent argument that he has in his life at the moment um, that they knew of. But when we started looking into it, there really were a lot of other possibilities, not just other people. I mean, the police are pretty certain he met with foul play, and that does seem to be the case, particularly since his dog uh, also went missing at the same time. He had a red Kelpie called Kelly who um, has also never been seen since that day. That sort of points in the direction of someone having done something to both of them. But certainly there are still those wild possibilities in that landscape out there. You know, there are sinkholes, there are snakes, there are birds of prey and wild animals and all of those things, you you really can't rule them out. What do you think it is about that Australian outback setting that really captures the imagination of readers, not just more city folk, but people abroad who have had other missing well-known cases like Peter Falconio. What do you think it is that we don't understand, I guess, about that part of Australia? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's almost kind of buried in the national psyche somewhere, this attachment to the outback. There were times during the research for this book that you're also very aware of just how terrifying that isolation can be to be outside of phone reception, to be hours away from a police station or an ambulance. And certainly in some of those kind of outback frontier towns, there is a sort of sense of lawlessness as well because they are so far outside the reach of the laws. You know what I think it is? I think it's that we we all fear those places. Like when we travel there from our towns and cities, we have this feeling of of discomfort, this idea that something might go wrong or we might be gobbled up by some animal. And when we hear these stories of people going missing, it kind of confirms our worst fears that are so vivid in our imaginations. Yeah, 100%. You can't walk around Larimer without that entering your mind, or at least I can't. Um, I remember the first time I went there, I thought it'd be a great idea to get up and go for a jog in the morning. And I went the first couple of days and it was so hot and there was just no one around. And 
I just had this thought of if something happened out here, no one no one would find me. I wouldn't be able to get back. That takes me to my next question. In some ways, they're very exposed areas. You know, they're not heavily wooded, but also there's vast landscapes. So I guess what this case has in common with other mysteries in the outback is that a body has never been recovered. So is it hard to find and hide a body out there? In some ways, it's very exposed, but it's also not. Yeah, I mean, certainly the police in their searches, one of the detectives had told us he had gone up in the helicopter just almost to confirm what it looked like from up there and that you could very vividly see sort of individual kangaroos around. I mean, I think the thing that consistently people in town had told us was that if there was something there that you would have seen the birds of prey. But also in saying that, I mean, the police search was extensive one of the biggest searches that people involved had ever seen. Yeah, and there was a lot of space for imagination about what might have happened as well. Tell us how wild the rumour mill got. Pretty wild, but the thing is that every actual possibility with what could have happened to Paddy sounds ridiculous, to be frank. You know, like a man and his dog falling down a sinkhole, that sounds insane, but it is, I guess, a possibility. Towns in the Northern Territory are known for being great at telling tall tales. So it did kind of escalate to um, some pretty epic proportions, I think. Like what? There were people who, you know, said, oh, I heard someone say that someone had paid them to have Patty killed and that that person, you know, then suddenly came into all this money and um, he said he wanted on Kino, but no one believes that. We all think that he did it. There were rumours about Paddy still being alive and that he'd orchestrated this whole thing and that he might be sitting in a pub somewhere down south just having a great laugh at it all. In a place like the Northern Territory, it's not unusual for these stories to actually be true. So you kind of can't discount anything. And given it's a really small town and they might be hesitant to out-of-towners, I wanted to ask how you were received. Was there much pushback to you coming into the community when you started to pry? You would think that people would be hesitant. Um, (laughs) We ourselves were shocked by it. I have never been to a place where people are more candid. In one particular case, we turned up unannounced with a recorder, a bloke named Cookie, whose real name is Barry as well. Um, He was cleaning out his car in his undies, invited us straight in for a cup of tea and, you know, launches into the whole thing before the kettle has even boiled. And never put pants on. We were there. Never put pants on. (laughs) More than an hour. Never put pants on. And so in some ways we were really shocked at the the level of candour. And what do you think the most likely scenario is, do you think there's a chance he's still alive? I think it would be really difficult for someone to intentionally disappear for that length of time. There's not a substantial motivation to do it. So I think we have for ourselves pretty much ruled that out as a possibility. We would agree with the police conclusion that the most likely theory is that this is foul play. But I guess one of the the frustrating part of this is that it was really difficult to conclusively rule out anything. Police have recently put up a a reward, a $250,000 reward for information, which also to us suggests that, that maybe more than one person knows what's happened here. So that was Caroline Graham and Kylie Stevenson. They've written a book called Larimer. It comes out this week all about Paddy Moriarty's disappearance and the town of Larimer. 
Now, Annika, there are a lot of people that go missing that don't get books written about them. I think what this story really says to me is how much these outback places play with our imaginations. Yeah, I think there's definitely something in that. You look at um, infamous crimes that have captured the imagination of Australia, whether that be whatever happened to Peter Falconio and, of Mm. course, Dingo's Got My Baby. We all know about that and Mm. how that turned out. But as you say, these situations happen in main big cities sometimes and they don't seem to have the same romanticism about them. I think there's something about that part of the world that both intrigues and also terrifies us. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, the vaccine mandate debate. Listener.